Welcome to CME on ReachMD. The following activity titled, Detangling Difficult Conversations About Multiple Sclerosis, Clinical Exchanges, is jointly provided by Postgraduate Institute for Medicine and RMEI Medical Education, LLC. Prior to beginning, please be sure to review the faculty information and disclosure statements, as well as the learning objectives. For more episodes in this series, visit reachmd.com CME. My name is Dr. Patricia K. Coyle. I'd like to tell you about one of my patients, Regina. She's a 38-year-old full-time paralegal, and she's had type 1 diabetes for 11 years. She's on an insulin pump and also takes Phentermine, and she's engaged to be married. Regina is presenting with a recent history of persistent blurring of her vision in the right eye. Initially, she attributed this to a side effect of the phentermine, which she was taking for weight loss. But she went to see her primary care physician, and that possibility was quickly rejected, and she was referred for an immediate neurologic evaluation to rule out a possible optic neuritis. Regina had no uh, previous history of any visual or any neurological issues. So she got a brain MRI very quickly, and that showed several lesions on flare T2, and they were localized to the corpus callosum, to the cerebellum, uh, periventricular, and juxtacortical, some very favored areas, the infratentorial, the periventricular, the juxtacortical location in particular. Several of the lesions actually enhanced with a gadolinium-based contrast agent, and there was signal change within the right optic nerve that would be con uh, confirming a problem with the optic nerve there. She also underwent MR imaging of her spine, cervical, and thoracic that showed no intrinsic spinal cord lesions, and she underwent a lumbar puncture, and that was positive for CSF-specific oligoclonal bands. So let's start with our first question. Given Regina's presentation, what is the next best step? The correct answer here is C. We're going to be able to, with other things ruled out, diagnose her as having relapsing MS, and we will be recommending uh, starting a disease-modifying therapy. Now, in making the diagnosis of MS, we have 2017 McDonald revised diagnostic criteria. Uh, if you have at least two lesions and objective clinical evidence for that, you have dissemination in space, and then you need to meet dissemination in time, which would be a second separate attack, or evidence on MRI imaging, simultaneous enhancing, non-enhancing lesions, or we can substitute CSF-specific oligoclonal bands to make a diagnosis even at the time of a first attack. If there's just evidence of one lesion dissemination in space, then we need another attack, or we need to meet dissemination in space by having two of four preferential areas show lesions on the MRI scan, and then we can meet dissemination in time or substitute the spinal fluid. So it's possible to make a diagnosis of definite MS even with just one attack with the 2017 revised diagnostic criteria. So Regina actually meets the 2017 diagnostic criteria even though she's just had one attack. She shows evidence of MRI dissemination in space because she has uh, at, at least one T2 lesion, three millimeters or greater in size, in at least two of the four specified areas, uh, juxtacortical, cortical, periventricular, infratentorial, and spinal cord. 
and she has enhancing and non-enhancing lesions, giving her dissemination in time. Plus, she also has the CSF-specific oligoclonal bands. So with other disorders ruled out, Regina qualified for a diagnosis of MS at this first attack of optic neuritis. And the American Academy of Neurology and their 2018 practice guidelines have been very strong about offering MS disease-modifying therapy to individuals diagnosed with relapsing MS who are active, they've had a recent attack, or had new MRI lesion activity after discussion of risks and benefits, and in even first attack clinically isolated syndrome patients that show two or more brain lesions suggestive for MS with other disorders ruled out. So they've made a strong recommendation about discussing implementing a disease-modifying therapy in established active relapsing MS or in the clinically isolated syndrome high-risk patient. She has active relapsing MS. So with regard to uh, making the diagnosis, the AAN practice guidelines really uh, emphasize in uh, establishing the diagnosis and then uh, implementing disease-modifying treatment a shared decision-making approach. We want to talk to the patient. We want to understand and respect their treatment goals and preferences as we're mutually making a decision about what's the best disease-modifying therapy for them. We also want to make sure they are educated and understand what the DMT does that it's being used to minimize future events, reduce attacks, evidence of new MRI activity, disability on the exam. It's not to treat symptoms. It's not to recover. It's not to get better. It's not to feel well, although ultimately I think that's in, that's in their best interest. So, Regina, we've diagnosed you with relapsing MS, but we now need to turn to a very important conversation on selecting your optimized disease-modifying therapy. I need to find out from you, what are your major concerns in your day-to-day -day living? What are the important things with regard to a therapy that you might be taking that you may need to take for a number of years? My whole thing is that, as you know, I am a type 1 diabetic as well. So I'm currently maintaining that disease. So that takes quite a bit of, of work. However, it is controlled, and it's, it's, it's kind of easy for me to control it, where I feel as if MS really is not. You kind of don't know what to expect with it. So my, one of my goals, one of my main goals, is that I would like my treatment to be as simple as possible, something that I um, don't necessarily have to go every six months for blood work or you know, have to worry about other potential major side effects. Um, I want it to be safe uh, for potential pregnancy. And, you know, if I were to be on the medication and become pregnant unplanned, I would want to ensure that it was a safer medication that, you know, we wouldn't have any, you know, too many complications to worry about. Now, there are different uh, delivery systems. So, among our treatments, some are given by needle injections, some are oral pills and capsules, others are given by intravenous infusion. What, what do you think about those various methods? As far as a, an oral medication, for example, I feel that I would maybe forget to take, if it's twice a day, there's potential that I, I'm busy at work or I'm running late, 
and the day gets away from me and I, I could potentially forget to take a dose of the medication. Um, I would feel comfortable with an injection. As you know, I'm, I'm used to, you know, using injectables currently. So I think that that would be the best route for me to go or the more comfortable route for me to go versus even going, you know, to an infusion, you know, treatment at this point in my disease. Does the length of time we've had a disease-modifying therapy matter very much uh, to you, ones that have been out a long time versus newer ones? I would like to stick with something that's been out for quite some time, something that's been tried and true, something that's been used by, you know, other MS patients for a considerable amount of time. And we really use a three-talk Elwin model of shared decision-making. We need to elicit the patient's goals and their preference about care. Then we have a discussion with the patient about their treatment options based on those goals and preferences with our strong input. And finally, mutually, uh, the patient and the clinician decide on treatment uh, and what is in the best interest of the patient, what they will be able to take and adhere to. So in this next video, in this next video, I'm going to be reviewing the clinical relevance of treatment preferences and concerns expressed by Regina. Well, Regina has been pretty clear in our discussion. She wants a disease-modifying therapy that we would view as very safe, minimal, little to no monitoring required for it, a disease-modifying therapy that's been on the market for a long, long time, She's not phased by a needle injectable at all. That's a little bit different than, than many newly diagnosed patients, and that's really because of her uh, type 1 diabetes. And she's going to be getting married and thinking about a family, and so pregnancy is a major factor as well. So we've really delineated a couple of major topics from uh, our patient that really are factors in choosing among the various uh, disease-modifying therapy choices. So another question, what is the most appropriate DMT selection on the basis of Regina's goals and preferences? And the correct answer here is D, glutaramiracetate. What Regina clearly uh, voiced was that she was interested in safety, limited monitoring, what had long-term market experience. She wasn't phased by injections at all. In fact, she rather preferred that and the potential for pregnancy. That really indicates the interferon betas or glutaramiracetate and particularly GA with regard to the limited monitoring and potential of pregnancy. In this next video, we will discuss Regina's DMT options. So I'm going to be discussing the myriad of disease-modifying therapies for MS, but I think it's easy to put them into three groups and talk about them like that and what are the major pros and cons. The first are the needle injectables. So what are the really good things about them? They date back to the 1990s. So these are the disease-modifying therapies that we have the longest experience with, 20-plus years. So they're tried and true. We know exactly what they do. We know exactly their safety profile. They've been on the market a long, long time. Um, no, no surprises whatsoever. They are needle injectables. Not everybody likes that, okay? And they range from uh, daily to as infrequent as every two weeks. For the most part, 
They're shallow needles. They often have auto injectors. You can just press a button, et cetera, but you will need to uh, inject them. Now, in particular, I'll call out these are glutarimer acetate and the interferon betas. I will mention that glutarimer acetate is the only disease modifying therapy that requires no blood monitoring, uh, no blood work to follow, et cetera. Uh, in addition, it has the broadest pregnancy exposure, over 7,000 cases. Uh, it really has not shown any signs of, of injury, of teratogenicity, and actually some people use it during pregnancy. That's true for the interferon betas as well that have several thousand, uh, but certainly the biggest experience and considered, um, let's say, the m- least risk for pregnancy would be glutarimer acetate specifically. Now we can move on to the orals, and there are three of them, fingolimod, teraflunomod, and dimethylfumarate. They range from a pill or a capsule that you would take once a day in the case of fingolimod and teraflunomod to twice a day in the case of dimethylfumarate. They date, uh, they, they've been available since about 2010 uh, to 2013. So they are newer. You're not going to have 20-year-plus experience. Uh, There are pros and cons for each of them. Certainly being an oral, most people consider um, a real benefit. And the issue is with regard to efficacy, each of the orals has had some head-to-head study uh, against one of the earlier needle injectables. And the efficacy is at the least equal. And in some aspects, it even looked a little bit better than the needle injectable. So there's no sacrifice of efficacy with regard to the orals. Uh, For each of them, you do need to do some preliminary monitoring tests. It's a little bit uh, heavier duty for uh, fingolimod in between teraflunomod and the least for dimethylfumarate. And these are typically extremely well tolerated, but each of them has a little bit of pros and cons that we can talk about in greater depth if you decide that an oral would be appealing. And certainly, it can be used as a first-line agent. Okay. The third group would be the monoclonal antibodies. And these are, there are three of them, alemtuzumab, natalizumab, and ocrelizumab. And they're given by intravenous infusion. So you come to an infusion room on a regular basis to get that, that medication. So the monoclonals as a group are the high-efficacy agents. They are very effective in shutting down the MS disease process, typically. But they do carry more risk. So if we look at the needle injectables, the orals, the monoclonal mm-hmm. infusibles, I think with regard to your MS, you, you really could be eligible for any of those. I don't see you as having such active MS that we need to really push for a high-efficacy agent. But I'd like to hear which of these appeal to you or what you you think about these disease-modifying therapies. I would say initially upon hearing about the severity of the potential side effects of the infusion drugs, I would at this point in my disease... As you said, I'm feeling well. I'm not having any kind of, you know, exacerbations currently. I feel, I personally feel for myself that the injectable would be the best route to go for me at this time. 
I like the fact that it's virtually low maintenance and also that I can regiment a schedule, fit it in with my own schedule and really not have to think about it. As far as the, the oral medications, like I said, I'm a little iffy. Maybe I'll forget to take a pill. So I feel like at this point for me and the way my life is right now, I'd like to go with an injectable. So another question, which of the following describes immediate post-injection reaction associated with glutamine acetate? The correct answer is B, a benign panic-like attack, tachycardia, chest tightness, shortness of breath, flushing and rash very quickly after the injection. So this was one of the statistically significant side effects. It's important to emphasize it's transient, self-limited, and benign. It occurs in up to 16% of patients, generally just once, sometimes more often, lasts anywhere from 5 to 15 minutes. Important to recognize because this can be frightening to the patient. Uh, they may even think they're having a heart attack um, if they don't realize that this is a uh, ultimately completely benign, uh, rare uh, side effect. In the following video, we will discuss Regina's decision and treatment plan. So, Regina, it seems like we're coming down to the needle injectable. So how do you feel about glutaramer acetate versus one of the interferon betas? I kind of, at this point, feel that I would prefer to go with the GA only because of the safety factor with pregnancy and if in the event I were to become pregnant and would have to be on a medication at the same time, I feel that it's the safest route to go to proceed, you know, with a healthy pregnancy, also being monitored, you know, my disease, my MS being monitored by you, if you feel like that's the best way that I should go. And it sounds like it is. I'm comfortable with that. Um, I think that's the way that we should proceed at this point. I do think that's a very good choice, and I think it really fits your needs as we went over and your expectations in a disease-modifying therapy. Do you have any um, specific <clears throat> questions to me about how to take latirumor acetate dosing or anything of that sort? Yes, actually. I mean, <clears throat> would this be on a regimen? Would I be taking this medication every day? Would I be taking it twice a week? And also, as far as potential... Side effects in general, nothing major, but general side effects of the medication. So there are two forms of glutaramer acetate. The earlier form was an injection, a 20 milligram sub-Q daily, so it was seven days a week. However, they subsequently studied uh, a second different dosing formulation of 40 milligrams, and they, will t they were able to give that successfully three times a week. So I really think that the 40 milligrams sub-Q injection three times a week would be the way to go for you. Um, the good news about uh, glutaramer acetate is it, it really only had two statistically significant side effects. So the first were injection reactions, typically very, very mild, rarely might be more significant. And I do like to tell people about a cosmetic issue that can arise over the years called lipoatrophy, where there's some subcutaneous loss of fat and there can be dimpling of the skin. But most times the injection site reactions are not an issue at all. They're really very well tolerated. The second is a scary but completely benign side effect. It's called the systemic reaction or immediate post-injection reaction. It's just good to recognize this. This comes almost immediately after an injection. 
It typically only occurs in 10 to 15 percent after people have been on it for a period of time. Typically, it's a single episode, but it's been described as a magnified panic attack where people can develop chest pain, uh, feel like they have a ball in their throat, feel like they can't breathe, they may be sweating, tachycardic, and then it passes after 5, 10, or 15 minutes. So the very important thing is to realize this is something that occurs immediately after the injection. Some people believe it may be an accidental intravenous um, injection. It's harmless. Absolutely no cardiac pulmonary uh, issues have been associated with it. So I want to hear if you were to have that, uh, but I want to have you really reassured that uh, it's it's a quite benign happenstance. Okay. Yeah, I mean, that's something that I could deal with versus side effects of other medications. That's tolerable for me. So since Regina's initial evaluation two years ago, she's been taking glutaramacetate regularly for the last two years. She's had no additional clinical attacks. She reports that she's now happily married, feeling well overall, no new symptoms, with the exception of some minor numbness and fatigue. Despite her positive clinical report, however, her recent surveillance MRI scan of the brain showed two new enhancing periventricular lesions on the left. After discussing these results, we mutually agreed to watch and wait for another three months and then repeat much more quickly a new surveillance MRI scan before we would ultimately determine to switch in isolation on simply an MRI scan. Thank you. Hello, I'm Clyde Markowitz, director of the MS Center at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia, and welcome to Clinical Exchanges. I'm going to talk to you about a patient of mine, Elizabeth, and her main complaint is she doesn't like her medication and she doesn't even think it's working. So to briefly review her history, she's a 34-year-old teacher and a soccer coach. She's married, has two young children. Her family history is significant for a deceased aunt with multiple sclerosis who refused treatment, and she's had relapsing remitting multiple sclerosis for seven years. Right now, she would like to avoid self-injections at all costs if possible. She's been taking dimethylfumarate regularly since diagnosis and complains of persistent severe flushing. She had a MRI scan of her brain and cervical spine, which shows several lesions in the periventricular white matter, as well as significant number of lesions in her cervical spine, and there's been some progression on her imaging studies of late. In this next video, I'd like to speak to Liz about what's going on and start a conversation on possibly switching her DMT. So Liz, you came in today. Um, The concern is that the medication you've been taking may not be getting the job done. So we have to make a assessment about what to do next. You know, you had a evidence of new lesions on your MRI scan, and we're concerned that we may need to make a change. So I want to ask you, what are your concerns or your goals about going on to a different therapy than what you're on currently? Um, when I was with my different doctor, I was put on DMF, and I haven't really liked how it's been working out for me because my lesions have come back and my biggest issue is the one that I've had in my neck. And because I'm very active, I like to play sports, I coach, I'm a teacher, and I have two young kids, 
I want to make sure that my I'm able to be ambulatory the entire time because I have things that I still want to do <laughs> for the rest of my life. Absolutely. And the other issue I ran into is I don't like the side effects, the DMF. So the DMF causes me to flush really bad. And when you're a teacher and you turn bright red, kids notice that kind of stuff and they kind of point out, you know, that it's happening. So I want to try to find something that's going to be a little bit more friendly for the classroom, but also is going to make sure that I'm able to be physically active for a very long time. I understand. Well, you know, so as part of the decision-making for which medication might be appropriate, we have to think about family issues, right? So any plans to have any more kids in the near future? No, two is enough. <laughs> okay. And are there any sort of lifestyle concerns that you may have in terms of, um, you know, injections or infusions and how much time it might take to do an infusion or anything like that? I don't like needles, so I'd prefer not to have to ever give myself injections if I can avoid that at all costs. Um, I know that there's some medications out there that you have to get an infusion every month. My lifestyle is too active, and as a teacher, I can't take off that much time. So something that's going to allow me to progress with my treatment but not hold me back. And what about taking the pills? You were taking the DMF, and that was twice a day. Um, would you be okay about taking a pill once a day? Once a day would definitely be easier, um, but I already take, like, other medications to, like, the uh, vitamin D and birth control and that kind of stuff, and that's I don't want to add something else to that, especially if it's going to mess up my stomach or anything. And if I go away and I have to bring the medications with me, that becomes an issue as well. So we have a question. Elizabeth complains of severe flushing from her DMF. What percentage of patients experience flushing in DMF clinical trials? So what we know is that flushing occurred in about 40% of patients taking DMF in the clinical trials. And there have been a number of mitigation strategies that have been used to take to reduce the likelihood of these side effects. First of all, taking a non-enteric coated aspirin about 30 minutes before DMF has been shown to be helpful, as well as taking the DMF with a fatty meal. With Elizabeth, the flushing never eventually went away. It was very severe and interfered with her work. In this next video, I explore the issue in a little more depth with her. So you've been taking the DMF for some time now. Tell me a little bit more about the side effects that you've been experiencing. The biggest side effect was the flushing that I had. Um, I kept being told that it was like short term and I was on the medication for, I've been on the medication for almost three years and the flushing has never stopped. I would say it's about the three hour mark that I would, my face would turn bright red um, and they would contact me and ask me, was I eating enough fat with it? Like take butter with it, like increase that. The issue I also ran into is if I didn't take the pills at the same time every day with food, the flushing would get worse. And at night, I don't always eat dinner at the same time. So that would become an issue. Like I, I coach soccer, so sometimes our soccer games run really late and I don't get home till 8 o'clock, which means dinner's not like 8, 30, 9 o'clock, which then causes an issue with taking the medication. And when you teach, it's really hard and my face would turn so red and the kids would be concerned, and then I'd have to leave the classroom and put ice on it to try to cool it down because it was painful. The, what I was told and what happened were not one and the same thing, and I really just didn't like it. 
And did anybody ever talk to you about maybe taking uh, aspirin or baby aspirin or something like that? I did take the baby aspirin. Um, I actually increased the doses of the baby aspirin to try to fight it, and that didn't help either. Any gastrointestinal side effects? No, I never had any of that. And there is a concern that, you know, monitoring, having routine blood work done for this medication needs to be done. We monitor people's lymphocyte counts. Was there any problem related to that? No, there was, I remember one test in the very beginning that came back lower than Rusha, but my neurologist at the time was very on top of making sure that we monitored that, but it was never, I never had to stop taking it. Yeah, another question. Which of the following are appropriate options to discuss with Elizabeth considering her preferences and lifestyle? Choose all that apply. So there are a number of reasons why people will need to switch their different disease-modifying therapies. And these include that maybe there's a lack of efficacy, maybe there's a safety concern, or possibly even some tolerability issues. In Liz's case, her experience with current DMT raises concerns about the DMT's efficacy, in particular with new lesions on her MRI scan, and her intolerability, repeated intense flushing. So typically when a patient experiences breakthrough disease, either in the form of clinical relapse or new lesions on their MRI scan, we generally like to think of switching them to a medication that has a different mechanism of action. We used to have an idea that you'd switch between uh, a class of injectable versus, you know, one injectable versus another. But in reality, we've learned over the years that a different mechanism of action may be more efficacious to switch to since you're going to be going down an entirely different pathway. The glutamine and interferon are self-injectables, and she is not interested in taking any of the injectable therapies at this point. So here's another question. Please match the following DMTs with their administration and monitoring requirements. So reviewing Liz's DMT options, we looked at some of the oral agents, fingolimod, which we know has some issues of first-dose bradycardia, and there has to be monitoring from an ophthalmologic standpoint, looking for macular edema, and even potentially some skin cancers. There's another oral agent, teraflutamide, which does have some teratogenetic issues that we have to be concerned about if he's planning any more pregnancies. Latent TB needs to be adequately screened to make sure they don't have exposure to tuberculosis. And monitoring the liver. And that's usually accomplished every month for the first six months and then every three to six months thereafter. On the infusible agents, we have ocrelizumab, which is fairly new. One thing to concern ourselves in that arena is the potential increased risk for breast cancers, but we don't really have a lot of data at this point to say that that is a significant concern, but we do monitor patients and make the recommendation that they have adequate screening. Alemtuzumab has a variety of issues related to secondary autoimmune issues, so that needs to be adequately monitored and monitored for at least a period of four years after their last treatment. Natalizumab, also an intravenous medication, but does carry a risk of PML, particularly in patients who have a positive JC virus antibody test. So let's talk about the different treatment options to consider. Injectable drugs seem like they're off the table because you really don't want to give injections. So we do have two other oral agents to consider. Okay. One is teraflutamide. It's administered once a day 
It does have a little bit of some gastrointestinal side effects. A couple of things we need to do in terms of monitoring to see if you have adequate, um, if your liver's okay and if you have ever had a history of tuberculosis, but easily screened with blood work, not a problem. There is a pregnancy concern for that one, but it doesn't sound like you're planning on any more kids at this point, so I think we can leave that as an option. Another option in the oral arena would be fingolimod, which is also once-a-day pills, probably one of the better tolerated medications in terms of side effects, but does have a lot more monitoring concerns. So for that one, because it can have an effect on your heart rate, you actually have to have a EKG done before you even consider going on to the treatment. You need to have monitoring done for six hours. It can be done either at home or in the doctor's office. And that one is done uh, with blood pressure and pulse monitored every hour for that six hour period. And after that, you're okay. There are some medications you won't be able to take um, that could have effects on the cardiac rhythm as well. So that's something we'll need to know about. Other than that, other things include um, infection risks. Bad asthma would be a problem. So do you have a history of any asthma? No, okay, I do Okay, so that wouldn't be an issue. You need to see the eye doctor at baseline and cause some swelling in the back of the eye. So we recommend you get a baseline, then at about three or four months on treatment, you would get follow-up eye exam, and then once a year or any time that you're actually having any vision complaints. And then it's not a clear requirement, but we do recommend people get baseline dermatologic assessments because there may be an increased risk for skin cancers. So it's good to get an assessment at baseline and then to have that monitored on a regular basis. Okay. So those are the oral medications. So you have any concerns based on that for the orals? How long do the side effects normally last? Well, when you think about the safety issues for these medications, there's something that needs to be monitored. The cardiac piece for fingolimod, if you don't have any problems in that first six hours, you're okay. Not okay. a big deal. Um, but the other pieces to the monitoring of having your eyes evaluated and your skin, that's ongoing and you'll continue to do that. Okay. Blood work needs to be done because it can affect the liver. You have to monitor the blood counts because if they go too low, we may get a little concerned and may need to alter that. Okay. Um, that's the main issue with fingolimide and the, and the teraflutamide. It's just the first six months you need to have to monitoring the liver on a monthly basis. And then after that, it's really every three to six months. Okay. I, now I think you answered everything. Okay. So let's move on and talk about the intravenous medications. So there's natalizumab, which is, is, it is administered every month. The infusion lasts about an hour, something that you'll need to schedule into your world. The big concern, I mean, there are some infusion reactions for the most part are managed with the pre-medications if people are having issues, but it's fairly well tolerated. The big issue with that one is that it can increase the risk for PML and the numbers are much higher and the risk is much greater. And there's a number of things that we can do to kind of figure out who's at greatest risk to develop PML. We can do some blood tests, checking for the JC virus antibody. And if there's evidence that the index is high, we may say this is not an appropriate treatment for you. Other than that, um, we can talk about the most recently approved intravenous medication, which is called ocrelizumab. And that one was approved just about a year and a half ago. It's administered every six months. And that one is, the first dose is administered in half. So you do basically half, and then 14 days later, you do another second half of it. And then every six months, you just do one infusion. 
Fusions last about four to five hours. The main issue for the reason why they split it in half is because there are infusion reactions, much greater so than what you see with natalizumab. So the premedication and the rate is slower so that you get less of that infusion reaction. Okay. In terms of side effect issues, I mean, for the most part, it's very well tolerated. Um, some people may find that they're a little fatigued, you know, the next day or something like that, but no major problems there. And there haven't been any PML cases that are directly attributable to ocalizumab, but there have been some cases that have been carried over from patients who switched from anatolizumab or from fingolimod that probably had it even before they switched, and then they got switched onto the medication and it showed up clinically. Okay. So, but for the most part, does not seem to have any major uh, issues there. There is a concern that maybe it increases your risk for breast cancers. So that's something that needs to be monitored. And it's, if it's appropriate by age screening, we recommend people stay on top of that. And there's a third intravenous medication called alemtuzumab. And this one's administered intravenously for five consecutive days. And then you don't have to do any further infusions of that really till the next year. How long is each infusion for that one? Well, it's again, it's part of the, um, like a day kind of thing. You know, it's not the whole day, but you know, five, six, sometimes, you know, eight hours, but it's a slower infusion. Okay. And the main concern with that medication is that, I mean, you have the infusion reactions as well, so you have to pre-medicate, but the bigger concern is that we've seen a number of cases of what we call secondary autoimmune events where people develop an autoimmune condition that they didn't already have. And it could be an autoimmune thyroid condition, either hyper or hypothyroid. There's also some um, autoimmune platelet disorders and kidney disorders. So these are things that have to be monitored to kind of pick them up early. And for the most part, you need to have blood work and urine done every month for at least four years after your last infusion. So. How long do those drugs stay in your system after the infusions? They stay in there for a period of time, and usually it's about a month, but the effect of the drug is much longer because uh -huh. at least for some of the medications, so like the natalizumab, it is blocking the migration of lymphocytes. If you take the drug away, the lymphocytes start migrating again, mm -hmm. and you can get you know disease activity coming back. Whereas with alemtuzumab and with ocalizumab, you're actually depleting cells from the body, and it takes a longer period of time for those cells to come back. But what's important about its benefit is that because it takes a while for them to come back, the effect on helping MS is much longer past the actual infusion itself. Does losing that specific blood cell hurt me in any kind of way, or does my body make up for the loss of that? So that's what some of the, the concerns on the safety side of the conversation is. So losing you know, a certain population of cells from your body might be important in putting you at risk for certain kinds of infections uh -huh. or maybe for certain kinds of malignancies. Or you know, the, the biggest concern with the autoimmune events that are happening with alemtuzumab is that because you're having these cells depleted for long periods of time, when they start to repopulate, you may get a dysregulated group of cells that may end up causing problems because you don't have the regulatory loop to keep them in check. Gotcha. So welcome back, Liz. So you went home, you did a little bit of research. Tell me some of your questions. 
Um, well, I looked at the pills, and I've definitely decided I don't want to take those. It's too much work to try to remember to take one or two every day or making sure I eat at the same time I take them. The DMF, I definitely don't want to take anymore. It was too many side effects. It upset me too much with too many issues. Um, I also don't like the fact that there's the increase of the brain virus with that, with the second one. Um, the infusions sound better, particularly the one that's every six months. And I did some research, and I promise it was real research, it wasn't just Google, where I read real background information on both. And the, I'm going to say the name wrong, and I'm really sorry. The ocrelizumab, yep. that one seemed better because the side effects seemed less than the other one. And I like the fact that it wasn't every month. As a teacher, there's no way I can find every month a way to get into the doctor's office to take an infusion. It just didn't seem smart for me. Um, and then the other one, it sounded like the negative effects were too strong that I can't risk with two children having something happen to me. Like, I need to be around to be able to take care of them. So for me, the oquilizumab sounds like the best option, and it's the one that I think I want to go with. But I'm kind of curious what you think would be the best option. So, uh, you know, I can't agree more. I think that um, oquilizumab got approved about a year and a half ago. It's a new drug. So we don't know what the long term is going to look like for this. Don't say that. That's scary. It's the truth, though. I know. Right? But we do have a history of a drug called rituximab that has been used for many, many years and is pretty much the same kind of drug. It's slightly different. And the safety profile for that one is actually very good. So I'm less worried about the fact that it's only been out on the market for a year and a half or so. That being said, you know, some of the other intravenous medications do carry different risk profiles. The natalizumab, which is being very effective, but does carry a, a significant risk for PML. And the alemtuzumab being one that has a little bit more of a secondary autoimmune events. So to me, I, I agree with you that ocalizumab would be the best option. Here's a question. In a follow-up discussion, Liz wants to know what happens if the ocalizumab stops working. Which of the following should be recommended by me to monitor Liz's disease activity after starting ocrelizumab. So how do we monitor disease activity? So one of the things that we really look for is, you know, are there any clinical features to suggest a new inflammatory event, such as a clinical attack or worsening some other clinical symptoms? We do monitor patients by MRI scan, and we need to establish a new baseline. And generally, it's recommended that the new baseline scan should be obtained about three to six months after initiation of a new DMT. The rationale behind that is that the notion is that certain medications may have a period of time before they are either at full dose or if the medication has had their benefit yet. So you want to give that period of time to establish that the drug is now adequate in its dosing and its efficacy and get a scan at that point, it'll function as a new baseline. Now, in terms of when you want to be able to determine if that medication is adequate in the long term, is really issues related to, you know, how do we de determine a failure of therapy? You know, if they've had more than one clinical relapse, and again, these should be monitored after that initial period that you believe is now a baseline. 
So we'll say three to six months, any relapses after that period of time, or new T2 lesions on their MRI scan that we'd say two or more, or if they're having more disability. And they may take a little bit longer to assess over time. But these are the things that we look for when we're going to be monitoring and deciding if we need to switch somebody onto a different therapy. The Consortium of MS Centers Task Force made very specific recommendations regarding MRI imaging. And some of which is you should always make sure that you get adequate uh, baseline before you start or switch a therapy. Especially in the postpartum period, you want to establish a new baseline because disease activity could have occurred during that period of pregnancy, whether it be, you know, 10 months or even if it's going to be a year, if they're going to be breastfeeding for any period of time, to establish a new baseline before you get them onto their new treatment. We talked about the six-month time point after switching to a new DMT to establish a new baseline. I think realistically most of us would push that to three to six months, depending on which medication. And then how do we monitor people year after year? And it's generally recommended about one to two years they should have an MRI scan. And in my practice, I do it pretty much once a year. And if they've had the disease for a very long period of time, they've been stable, I might push it out to two years. But in general, at least in the beginning, I might say follow up at six months and then maybe a year and then every year after that. In addition, it is always helpful to get a new set of films if you are worried that there's some new complaints, such as a clinical attack or some unusual feature that you're worried there's going to be some altered diagnosis you need to worry about, in which case we would get MRI imaging at that point. So in follow-up, Liz has been stable on opalizumab for the last one and a half years. She's not had any breakthrough symptoms or any complaints about her new regimen, and she's happy to have found a treatment plan that suits her active and busy lifestyle. Thank you for joining us today on this clinical exchange. This activity was jointly provided by Postgraduate Institute for Medicine and RMEI Medical Education, LLC. To receive your free CME credit, please be sure to complete the post-test and evaluation by visiting reachmd.com slash CME. Thank you for joining us.